Welcome to the Grace College Podcast, a ministry of Grace Bible Church located in College Station, Texas. We desire to impact students who will impact the world for Christ. Hope you enjoy the talk and hang around for more after. All right. Well, howdy. My name is Kevin Bear. I'm the college pastor here at Southwood. So glad you are here this morning. If you have a Bible, jump over to Mark chapter one. We are starting a new series in the gospel of Mark. We have been uh, trekking through a relationship series. And if you were hoping to get another installment in relationships, good news is we're talking about another crucial relationship. And that is your relationship with Jesus Christ. And uh, we're We're looking at the gospel of Mark to do that, and we're going to spend the next seven weeks that we have together going through some key moments in the gospel of Mark. And there's a couple reasons for that. One, it's the shortest gospel, and uh, we figured that would be helpful for for all of us to go through a short gospel for us this semester. And the other reason is this, and what I'm going to talk about in a moment is because the bottom line is when, when you get to know someone for the first time, you, you need to know a little more about them to know if you're going to trust them with something significant, all right? So this weekend, we, um, we need to move some furniture from my in-law's house to, to my house. Now, my in-laws uh, had bought a house uh, just down the street from where we used to live, and since we moved to a new house, my in-laws said, okay, we no longer want that house because it's not right near my grandbabies. And so they've, they've sold that home, but they needed to get all the stuff out of the house, including a refrigerator that was going to be moved to my house. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to move a refrigerator, ladies, um, but it's heavy, and uh, there's a lot of work that goes into it, and it's, uh, honestly, it was a little uh, discouraging when I went over to Home Depot to rent a refrigerator dolly, and I go to the guy, and he looks at me, and and I know I look impressive physically, but uh, up close, I'm not as big as you might think, and uh, as I'm standing in front of that guy, he looks at me and goes, "Um, are you moving this by yourself? And I was like, uh, no, I've got some buddies that are going to come and help me move it. So some guys from my table host group, some guys uh, from here, all helped me move this ridiculous refrigerator. And, and, and I know these guys. Like, I, I have a relationship with several of them. And so I, I kind of knew them. Um, we, we hadn't done bench press or anything yet, so I didn't know how much they could lift. But I was confident that I could trust them. But there came a moment when we finally got the refrigerator outside, and we're about to lift it up into the, guy, the bed of this guy's truck. And we all look at each other like, are we ready for this, gentlemen? And it's in that moment that, that when we're, gonna, <laughs> we're all going to be under the weight of this really heavy thing, that we got to answer the question, how much do I trust these people that are lifting alongside of me? I mean, how, how much do I trust these people to, to hold on? And, and not only just for my sake, I mean, we can all drop it and be fine, but, but I kind of want this refrigerator, you know? Like, I need them to lift it and put it onto the truck and be okay. And as we're all standing there doing this lift together, finally we, we got it together onto the truck. And I was like, okay, I can trust these guys a little more because I can see what they can do. And the reason I start there is because this. I, I want to take this moment to look at, look at Jesus through the gospel of Mark. And I want to look at what this guy can do. I want to look at the life that this man lived. And I tell you what, if you see truly the life that this man lived and who he is, you can know for sure that you can trust him, not merely to lift a refrigerator, but you can trust him with your life. You can trust him with the deepest parts of your life. And the other reason I think we we need to look at the gospel of Mark is, is this. 
right around Easter, we're going to march up to Easter looking at the Gospel of Mark, there's all this debate about who Jesus is. There's all these different ideas about who he is. But I'll tell you, one historian has said of the person of Jesus Christ. He says this, it's H.G. Wells. I'm a historian, I'm not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. And it's why that when Easter approaches, as we're going to approach Easter this semester, there's all this debate about this figure. There's all this debate about who he is and what he has done. In fact, CNN right now is running um, a, a documentary called Decoding Jesus, Separating Man from Myth. And they have all these authors that are talking about Jesus, who he is. And what's very interesting is the sides that these two parties are taking. There's one side, including uh, Timothy Freck. I'm going to say Freck. It's not Freak, I don't think, but Freck. Robert M. Prince and Richard Carrier, and they've all taken the side to believe that Jesus was a myth. He was a mythical figure in history. And one, Robert Prince says this in Deconstructing Jesus, his book. Everything we read about Jesus in the Gospels conforms to the mythical hero, Prince says. There's nothing left over that indicates that he was a real historical figure. In fact, these people are saying in CNN that Jesus wasn't really real. He wasn't even a real person. Richard Carrier goes on to say uh, in his book, he argues that, that Carrier argues that it's probable that Jesus never really existed and that early Christians experienced a mythic Jesus who came to them through visions and revelations. And so there's one side of this argument when it comes to Jesus is that he was a mythical figure. He wasn't even real. And if you've heard some of that personally, sometimes that can be derailing. Like, is that true? Can Jesus be proved as a real person in history? Some historians, not even a believer, says, no, he was the center of history. Other people are saying, no, he was a mythical figure. But what's so interesting in the CNN study is who's taking the opposing view. It's men like Bart Ehrman and Dominic Crossan. Bart Ehrman, who is, uh, he wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. So he's had a lot of interesting things around him. Another author, Dominic Crossan. And CNN writes this, the debate over Jesus's existence has led to a curious role reversal. Two of the New Testament scholars who are leading the way arguing for Jesus's existence have a reputation for attacking, not defending traditional Christianity. Ehrman, for example, is an agnostic, and he wrote this. He says that virtually half of the New Testament has been forged. That's Bart Ehrman's argument. And another defender, Dominique Crossan, the New Testament scholar, has, has written, he's been called a heretic because of the books that challenge his name. But Ehrman wrote this. He scoffed at the notion that the ancient world was full of pagan stories of dying deities that rose. Where's the proof, he asked. Ehrman devoted an entire section of his book critiquing I think it's Freck, F-R-E-K-E, Freck, the mystic and the author of the Jesus mysteries. And he says, look, there's no evidence that Jesus didn't exist. Every other evidence shows that he does. And he goes on to write this. But as to the existence of Christ, Crossan says, he says that Jesus, the Jesus deniers are people that probably have a problem with Christianity as a whole. And it's so interesting reading this article and seeing this debate. People that have been attacking Christianity And people that are saying that Jesus didn't even exist are at odds with one another. And what's the point? 
Even people that are looking at Jesus saying, this man is significant and I need to figure out who he was. And for me, when I was in college, I came face to face with this reality. Is Jesus real and is he who he says he is? I took a class called The Rise of Christianity and the professor would stand up and he would dismiss everything that the Bible said. And he would, he would talk about the things that we read in scripture, the things that we talk about when we hear the life of Jesus. And he, would, he would debunk them. He'd say, that's not really real. It didn't really happen that way. And I remember one time um, after class, I walk up to him and I said, um, professor, I, I just wanna ask you a question. Um, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe, are you a Christian? And he was trying to take the, the position of being like an, an unbiased observer. And he says, well, what do you think? And I responded to him, I said, well, I assume that you are a Christian. He says, why would you assume that? I said, because I can't imagine dedicating your life to something that you knew to be a lie. I mean, imagine if I was a doctor and I believed that, that, I, that I had personally been affected by cancer or maybe a family member had been affected by cancer and I decided to dedicate my life to finding a cure to cancer only to find out at some point during this journey that cancer didn't exist. Can you imagine continuing to study for cure for cancer for a disease that didn't exist? A disease that was false, that wasn't real? And I said, I'm looking, I'm looking at you, man. You have dedicated your PhD work, your writings, your teachings, everything to a person you think is unimportant, didn't really exist. Why would you waste your life that way? And I said that to him, and he goes, huh. And we moved on. And I almost wondered, did, did, has anyone ever challenged him that way? I can't imagine dedicating your life to something you knew to be false. Why waste your time? And the reason I think this is so crucial is because you've got to know. You need to know, is Jesus real? And if he's real, if he actually exists, if he actually did the things that he did in life, then he's, he's worth your entire life. One theologian, Albert Schwarzer, in the 20th century, he, he wrote this. He, looked at, he looks at the historical Jesus and he says that looking for Jesus in history is like looking down a well. There's so much to find. It's so deep to look at. And he writes, the real Jesus, Schweitzer says, will remain a stranger in an enigma, someone who is always ahead of us. And I, I feel like as I read Schweitzer's words, that's kind of defeating. He's saying that like, the trying to understand Jesus is like looking down a deep well. It's almost like you can't ever see the bottom of it. You can't even know what he's really like. He's almost like always an enigma. And I look at that, I'm like, I, I don't think that's true. I think you can actually know the person of Jesus. I think you can actually see him. And the reason I love the gospel of Mark is because we meet a man who met him. We meet a man who walked with him, who lived a life with him, who, who stood face to face with him. And I'll tell you, whenever you read about a famous person in history, whether it's a president or pop star or whoever, any famous person, what ends up happening is that famous person dies and then all like the brothers and sisters kind of pop up and tell the, the real behind the scenes story of that person. They're like, oh yeah, he was a great singer, but like, I don't know, he you know, slept in Superman pajamas. You know, like there's always like some background thing that just makes you dethrone that person. But as you peer more deeply into the person of Jesus, what you see is that he's, he's true through and through. He's the most significant person in history. And Mark was a man who saw him face to face.
Mark was a man who walked with him and saw him. And we meet Mark in this gospel. In fact, we see that Jesus is the person that we need, and we meet him in Mark chapter 14, verse 51 and 52, but it's kind of an unassuming way. We meet him, and it says that it was during the arrest of Jesus. He goes on trial, and he's arrested, and he starts, Mark starts as an observer. In verse 51, it says, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they, that's the, uh, the guards, seized him but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now I read that and I go, thank you, Bible, for your realism, right? So literally you got Mark as a young man and he sees Jesus being taken away and he's following him like covertly. And all he has is a linen cloth. Most commentators believe is that he saw Jesus being arrested and he's like, apparently I'm naked at home. I'm just grabbing a cloth and going to figure out where he's going. And he follows him along and they try to seize all of Jesus's followers. They grab the cloak and he runs away naked. This is what I would call an internal proof of the Bible. Because if you're writing a story about a significant person and you're writing yourself into that story, you're probably gonna put your best foot forward, right? You're going you're gonna to show that you, you were committed to this person or you were dressed. You know, like there's certain things that you would put into the Bible, but he doesn't. He's like, here's me. I'm naked boy that was running away into the darkness. I mean, we see Mark and he starts in a, as an observer. And then we pick him up in Acts chapter 13. He's a deserter. Mark was actually the, uh, the, the nephew of uh, Barnabas. And in Acts chapter 12, we see that in, in Mark's mom's house, they're having a prayer meeting. And then we meet, we meet young Mark there. And as they start going on a missionary journey, Barnabas says, yeah, I'm going to take Mark with me. And he's going to come and he's going to be part of this, this journey of, of bringing the gospel out to this new area. And you see in Acts chapter 12, he deserts Paul and he deserts Barnabas and he runs home. In Acts chapter 15, we see that he's not merely an observer or a deserter. We see that he's a divider. He splits the first missionary team. Paul and Barnabas were the first two missionaries uh, bringing the gospel out. And, and, and Paul took Silas. Barnabas took John Mark. And, and they're both saying, let's bring both of these men. And Paul and Barnabas, the super team of, of, of missionaries, fight over whether or not to bring Mark it says in Acts chapter 15, verse 36 through 40, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in each city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see who, where they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take him with them because he had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had, gone, and had gone, not gone with them in the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus and Paul chose Silas and departed having been commended by the brothers to go in the Lord. And you see that literally Mark divided the dream team. He divided the first two great missionaries. But at the end of Paul's life, we see that Mark was not merely an observer, a deserter, a divider, but we see that he was a contributor. In 2 Timothy 4.11, it says this, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him, to, bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. You see, Mark was a man who walked side by side with Jesus. Not just with Jesus, side by side with the, the apostles. And you know what? 
Mark was a guy just like you and me. He was a guy who, who watched from the outside. He was a guy who was on the inside but then bailed. He was a guy who divided people over him. He was a person at the end of his life who was a great contributor to what Jesus was doing in the world. I want to study this gospel because Mark is just like us. And he's writing to an audience in Rome. Most people believe that around 64 AD is when uh, Mark penned this, this letter. At that time, Nero was in power and he was blaming Christians. He was literally persecuting Christians. People were dying. And Mark is writing this letter to encourage those that are faint of heart. And I don't know where you find yourself this morning. I don't know where you find yourself when it comes to Jesus. I don't know if you find yourself as an observer, just kind of watching, checking things out, seeing what this Christian thing is all about. Some of you may literally find yourself as, as a deserter, like you've been walking with God, but this semester, the pressure is everything. You're just like, I don't, I don't know if I still want to go that far, Kevin. I don't know, Jesus, if I still want to follow you that far. Some of you feel like a divider. Some of you, when you go home, you've started walking with Christ and as soon as you go home, you know you're going to bring division to your family. For others of you, you feel like a contributor. You feel like you are doing something for the cause of God. I don't know where you are on that spectrum, but I'll tell you what, Mark has something for you. And at the beginning of this gospel, we see that, that Mark writes out something about the man we need to meet. And there's three things I want to give you this morning from Mark's intro of this gospel. We see the, the word, the gospel. We see the wilderness. And thirdly, we see the work of the Spirit. The first thing we see, though, is the gospel. Mark 1, verse 1 through 3 says this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The first word there is the word beginning. It's the word in Greek, in arche, and it's filled with biblical overtones. Mark is trying to say something here. There's the beginning of something great coming. Now, it's interesting, in, in ancient literature, they've used that word, um, the gospel, not merely to refer to what we know as a, as a book of the Bible or an account of the life of Jesus. When they heard the word gospel and you were living in Rome, you had a completely different paradigm for that phrase. You believed that it was referring primarily to the Caesar. In fact, one inscription of a Roman calendar says this, the birth, referring to uh, Augustus, Emperor Augustus, it says this, the birthday of the God who was for the world, the beginning of joyful tidings, that's the gospel, which have been proclaimed on his account. The good news, the joyful tidings that have been proclaimed. If you were a Roman and you heard the word gospel, you didn't think about Jesus and you didn't think about a book of the Bible. You thought about a new king coming to power. You thought about the birthday of an emperor in power. But what Mark is saying is there's, some, there's a new message coming. There's a new king coming. There's a political change coming when I'm bringing this gospel. And he calls him literally the son of God. He says the voice is one crying in the wilderness referring to the son of God. What's so interesting is what he quotes. It's Isaiah. 
Isaiah 40, verse three, here's what it says. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. And he's quoting, Mark is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. And here's what's fascinating about that quote. He's talking about God coming, that there's gonna be a highway. Make his way straight, let let God come forth. But he calls him something. There's a messenger that's preparing the highway for God. And then we see that John the Baptist is that messenger. But who's he preparing the way for? Well, we know it's Jesus. But you know the word used for God in that Isaiah passage, Isaiah 40 verse three? It's Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God. You see, the Jews never believed that God would become man. The idea that a God would step into to human form was completely rare. They, they, or they're completely unfathomable to a Jewish person. And they're saying, look, there's something that's gonna happen. There's gonna be a voice calling and then God is gonna come and they call God in this New Testament, Mark, a Jewish man, calls God Jesus. The voice is preparing the name for Jesus and this is crazy. What Mark is saying, the man I knew the person I walked with wasn't merely an impressive figure. He wasn't merely a political leader. He was God stepped into human form. He was God that came into our midst. And this is crucial. This is the end of philosophy. Philosophy is what? Our attempt to explain how God works in the world. Or our attempt to explain how reality works. But here's what Mark is saying. The eternal God stepped into history. See, Mark is saying the timeless one stepped into time. The unapproachable God became a dude you can hug. I mean, that's significant. That is a significant move. He says the king is coming. And think about it. If a new king is coming to town, how do you come? Well, in that day and age, you came with power, with power displays. You would get an army and an entourage and march your way to Jerusalem. But Jesus doesn't. You see how this king comes? He says, come with me to the wilderness. Come with me out there. And we see this king isn't coming to bring a war. He's coming to invite you to him. And he goes to the wilderness. And I think this is so interesting that John the Baptist prepares his way out there. In verse four, it says this. Now John appeared baptizing the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he lures the people out into the wilderness. And so if you read John, he's a crazed man, right? He's eating locusts and wild honey. He's dressed in camel hair. He's a unique figure in the wilderness. And he's calling people, come out to me. I'm gonna tell you about someone. I'm gonna point the way to this one. I'm the voice crying in the wilderness. And what's so interesting is what John is doing. He's calling people to where God has always called people to go, to the wilderness. You see, every person God prepares to use, he brings them first to the wilderness. So Abraham, he calls him to come to the wilderness and then he leads him in the wilderness. Moses spent 40 years wandering aimlessly in the wilderness. Paul spent 14 years in Arabia and there's something God wants to show you in the wilderness of your life that it's out in the wild that he's there to meet you. One author writes it this way, the wilderness is healing, a therapy to the soul. Most of the time in the 21st century, we dominate our surroundings. We tweak our thermostats and the temperature falls one degree. 
We push a button and Taylor Swift sings for us. It's the opposite in the wilderness, which teaches us constantly that we are not lords of our, of our universe. And so what God is saying is, look, there's a king coming, and if you want to meet him, you walk into the wild. I'll tell you what, that's been my story. Every time I meet God in a significant way, it's because he leads me into the wild, removed from distractions, removed from everything that I'm clutching to. And that may be where you are this semester. I remember when I was in college, um, for me, I, I ran track in college, and so everything was focused on being great at this athletic adventure. Everything was focused, and so my time, my food intake, everything was about being great at running. And so I remember one point in time is during my sophomore year of college, I got injured. And so literally, I couldn't run anymore. I had plantar fasciitis, which if you've ever had it, it's debilitating, it's horrible. But it only affected me when I ran. And so what I had to do for three months was to ride on a stationary bike. There are punishments worse than death, and stationary bikes are one of them, right? And so I was literally on this stationary bike riding for two to three hours a day, okay? This was horrible. I would put towels all beneath me and all around me as I would just sweat puddles, and then people would walk by just going, this guy's gross, and I'm like, okay, Two to three hours a day, and I remember I was so mad at God for taking away the thing that I had loved, running. I was like, God, I don't want to deal meth. I don't want to be crazy. I just want to run circles. Like, why are you taking this from me? I was so mad. And I, I remember later on, I, I got better, and later on that summer, I go uh, to spend some time with my cousins in Colorado, Pagosa Springs, Colorado. And I remember one time my cousin, as I'm out there, he, he tells me on where to go for a run. He says, look, just stay on the main road. Don't go to the right, don't go to the left. Just stay on the main road. And I said, okay, and I, I start running. And I'm out there on this road and I'm just running, running. And then my cousin's words start reverberating in my mind. Just, just stay on the main road. And then I feel God's sweet conviction come to me. He said, Kevin, you've been running this way and that your whole semester, your whole year. I'm just telling you, run after me. And I remember I was, I was, there's beautiful pine trees around me, beautiful road, and I just stop and I'm like, okay, God, right, right here, right here in the middle of the nothingness. And I tell you what, that's exactly what God will do to you. He will lure you into the wilderness, removed from all distractions. No one's going to tweet you. No one's going to text you. And even if they did, God says, look, I just want your undivided attention on me. I just want you to know me. I just want you to know who I am, and I'm going to lure you out into this desert wasteland when the only voice you can hear is mine, when the only thing that matters is what I'm going to speak to you. And I tell you what, some of you this semester go through deep disappointments so that God can wake you up to this. Some of you this semester, y'all go through crazy trials so that God said, okay, can we just remove every distraction and can I draw you right in here to listen to me? And that's exactly where Jesus goes. You see, he walks out to John the Baptist and he says, and John the Baptist is like, I don't even know why I'm gonna baptize you. You're the king. And Jesus says, ah, no, you're gonna baptize me. And then he gets out of the water and God speaks. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And you know where God sends him next? 
deeper into the wilderness. He turns and he goes to be tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights in the wild. I mean, can you believe that? It says the spirit of God leads him deeper into the wilderness to be tempted further. I mean, if I'm Jesus, I'm going, look, I followed you all the way out here for John the Baptist. I got dunked by him. That was cool. And now you're driving me further to be tempted by Satan face to face. What's the deal, God? But that's God's path. He says it's in private moments. It's private devotion that always precedes public victories. It's in private devotion in the wilderness that you meet the king face to face. It's out in the wild where God is drawing you to meet with him. And so I don't know where you've been this semester, but I do know this, you've got to follow his lead. And three times in this section in verse eight, in verse 10, and verse 12, the spirit is calling you to follow him. See, the Spirit baptizes Jesus as a dove. The Spirit directs him to go. And at the end of this section, it's the Spirit that convicts. In verse 14 and 15, it says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What is the gospel? It's simply this that you and I are sinners. We're separate from God. We deserve death because of our sin. But God is calling you to himself. He's calling you to repent of whatever it is you're chasing and just chase him. And Jesus stands there at the beginning of his ministry and says, come after me. I'm here to meet you. And he's asking us to repent. And repentance is always hard. What is repentance? Admission. I did wrong, and belief, I'm gonna trust that way is right. And it's always hard. I've got four kids. A little update on my family. Uh, we've had a toxic winter, 2017, in my house. They've been sick um, every minute of the past three weeks. And Daddy has hated life, um, if you're just gonna be honest. Um, because uh, each, when my children are sick, one of them in particular, um, I won't name him by name, uh, but uh, Jesse has issues, and, um, and he just gets livid and mad at life, and so he'll just literally scream for four hours in a row. He just screamed at everything. I'm like, Jesse, what do you want? You want ice cream, candy, joy, love, a trip to Disney World, anything. No! I'm like, this is not, I can, can't win. And finally, he like, he like hit a curve. And I'm like, Jesse, you screamed at daddy over everything. And then he went outside and he like took something Micah had and just like hit him and like walked away. And I'm like, this boy is going to not make it to see four. You know, he's three. And, and I go over to Jesse and I'm like, buddy, um, did you take that from Micah? He's just crying. No. And he's got it in his hand. I'm like, buddy, you just took that from Micah. No, he's just mad at everyone. And I'm like, dude, you've got to give that back to Micah. No. And I'm like, you will not watch a movie or live life past this moment unless you give it to Micah. And he, so finally he gave it to him. He's just crying and screaming. And then he asks me, can I watch a movie? Can you watch a movie? I look at him, I'm like, 
no, buddy, you're going to go sit in your room and think about this until you turn 20. Like, this is, this is what's going to happen. And, and he's like, why not? I'm like, you cannot scream at me for four hours and then get a movie. Like, this is not how we play. And, and I'm sitting there looking at him. He's like, he's like, well, why not? And I'm like, you don't get it. I said, buddy, okay, look, here's how you get to see a movie, all right? If you say you're sorry to me, if you say you're sorry to your brother, and you put on a happy, smiley face about it, that's how we get to see a movie. And he, and he just loses it once again. And just like kicking and screaming. And why? Because repentance is hard. And although you don't cre- scream and cry and throw a fit, I'll tell you what, when your roommates approach you about something you did wrong, there's something within you that wants to, right? There's something within you that just wants to cry and scream and no, I don't want to turn. No, I don't want to say I'm sorry. Even if your spouse, table host, like you're going to be guilty too. If, if they, your wife approaches you with something, hey, you handled that poorly. You're like, oh, did I? Let's talk about it. There's something within you that doesn't want to admit that you're wrong. But I tell you what, if you want to walk with this king, you've got to. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to admit your imperfections. You don't have to be great. You just have to say, hey, I'm I'm not all that I should be. And the people that have made the biggest difference in the world are ones that simply come to this man that are convicted by the spirit and say, you know what? I'm not where I should be. I'm not who I should be. Take me as I am. C.S. Lewis was one of these men. He wrote a book called Surprise by Joy. And the reason he wrote it is because he did not want to be a Christian. And he says, he says it this way. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in. I admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. (laughs) For some of you, that's your story. God's been pounding on your heart. He's the king you need. He's been luring you into the wilderness, stripping things from you just to show, hey, listen to my voice, listen to me. He's saying, just come. Start over with me. And I don't know where you are this morning. Some of you are simply observers. Some of you feel like deserters. Some of you feel like dividers. But I tell you what, no matter where you're at, Jesus is pleading with you, just come. Start over with me. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you that you don't call perfect people. You call normal, everyday, broken people like me to come to you. And Lord, I know that I so often chase my own desires, chase my own ends, and I don't simply come to your presence. So Lord, I pray this morning that you would draw us near to you and that we would trust you with our whole heart. It's in your name we pray, amen. Y'all turn to your tables and have some good discussion.